Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York, this is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. Theatre is an art form that celebrates togetherness. Since we can't be together right now, we're reaching out to theatre makers around the country to see how they're doing, what they're doing, and what they're looking forward to returning to when we get back into our rehearsal halls. My name is Jenny Werner, and I'm Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg. Each episode will feature a Jiva stage manager and their favorite rehearsal room calls, and I'll be joined by another Jiva staff member for a conversation with a theater maker about their life out of the rehearsal hall. Hello, everyone. We are here, and we are back. We can get started. This week, I'm joined by Fran Da Silvera, Jiva's assistant literary director. Fran, thank you so much for co-hosting today. Thank you for having me. So you started at Jiva this fall in October, and it both feels like a very short time and also like ages since then. <laughs> and it's been a little bit of a wacky year, but I'm wondering if you can um, talk a little bit about what's made your first season at Jiva memorable. Yeah, uh, definitely did not expect when I started in October <laughs> um, to, you know, have only a few months um, physically at the theater. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say that that's, that's really what's been um, really memorable so far is getting to be in a uh, physical theater um, for my day job. Uh, I've uh, worked at theater companies that sort of um, ha may have an office, like a permanent office space, but mm -hmm. not necessarily a physical theater where they put on all of their work. Um, so this is my first uh, experience actually um, getting to, you know, every day walk down into uh, the lobby and go into and peek inside of the theater and see, you know, what's, you know, what uh, stage the um, production is at. Um, and I find being in a theater space really inspiring um, for myself, uh, both as a dramaturg and as a playwright. Um, so it's, you know, you get your little boost of creativity um, whenever you want being in a physical space. Um, so that's been really great. And I really look forward to being able to be back there when we can be back there. And I'm interested in what, how you got interested in theater and, and then, you know, specifically playwriting and dramaturgy. Um, yeah, I started playwriting um, in my freshman year of high school. I went to a boarding school in Connecticut um, and they had many pretty, pretty buildings um, <laughs> on a very beautiful college-like campus. Um, and one of those buildings was the art center, um, the Paul Mellon Art Center. Um, and it was very grand and there was this really beautiful theater. Um, I, I can't remember how many seats um, it had, but to me as, as a freshman, it felt like a Broadway sized theater. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where we had all of our um, school meetings. So I think like the first day that I was there, that I moved uh, into campus, we were, um, we were brought in there and it was sort of like an eye-opening moment of, you know, all of these seats and such a huge stage. And um, so I think if, in that moment, I was a little bit fascinated by what a theater was. Um, and then we uh, also do an annual playwriting festival. Um, and I, for some reason, decided that I <laughs> was going to write a play and submit it to that playwriting festival. Um, so wait, had you, had you never written a play before that? I'd never written a play. Um, 13 year old Fran had only written some, uh, really bad poetry and fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, that was my repertoire, um, was Harry Potter fan fiction. Um, so yeah, I wrote a play uh, called Rising Without Wings. Um, which, Very poetic title. Thank you, thank you. Um, and it was set in the 1950s. 
um, about a white woman who moved to Chicago. Um, I think it was Chicago for the first time and um, falls in love with a black doo-wop singer. Um, and the, the play was about, you know, their relationships uh, and the difficulties that they faced. And um, I, I do not know why this was something that 13-year-old Fran <laughs> felt compelled to write. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, submitted it and it got chosen. They chose choose um, four plays every year to put on. Um, so was, and seeing that, seeing something that I wrote on a stage for the first time was incredible. Um, did it again the next year and then decided to go a little bit rogue after that and, um, started doing some guerrilla theater, um, and pretending that I, you know, was so abstract. Um, (laughs) And uh, then dramaturgy-wise, I did not get into dramaturgy until my um, sophomore year at NYU. Um, I was taking a lot of history classes and uh, decided to double major in history. And when I went and spoke to the um, department coordinator, she was like, oh, she, you know, signed off on letting me do that, but then was like, oh, um, have you heard of dramaturgy? And the answer was no, no idea what that was. Um, but she explained that it was sort of research-based and um, if I was interested in both theater and history, it might be something that um, I should explore. So I did and thus became a multi-hyphen uh, thespian. Wow. <laughs> um. But yeah, how did, how did you get into dramaturgy, Jenny? You know, interesting is kind of a similar way. I was at uh, Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, where I went to undergrad. And I was a double major in theater and history. And uh, I, was, I, I was doing dramaturgy before I knew the word. Um, I was directing Brian Friel's play Translations as part of my senior honors thesis and doing all of this research about the context of the world and the history of, you know, England and Ireland and this moment in time that the play is about where the English were changing the place names in Ireland from Irish names to English names. And as part of a grant I had gotten, I I had to, um, I went to the University of Iowa, which was the closest school with a graduate program to talk to the head of their theater graduate school. And um, he said, you know, there's a word for what you're doing right now. And I was like, no, there's not, you know, thinking that I, of course, had invented it all on my own. And um, so Art Baraka at the University of Iowa was the first person who said, yeah, what you're doing is called dramaturgy and it might be something you'd be really interested in. And it was like, like, you know, the world had exploded. Um, and, you know, of course, at the time, I thought that dramaturgy was only about doing historical research. And I didn't understand that it's also about understanding stories and how plays, you know, how plays work and really working on new plays um, and connecting with audience members and community members and creating conversations. That was not something that I understood that dramaturgy was. Although, you know, it sort of makes sense that I would also enjoy that I grew up um, in a family where stories kind of were um, the most important thing. My dad's a pastor and my mom is a school teacher. They're both retired now, but um, stories were like the way that I understood the world. So it kind of makes sense that I would you know, be in a field that is all about stories. Um, so yeah, but it, it, you know, again, you kind of, you luck into fields sometimes and discover, discover what your passion is. So thank you, Art Baraka. And thank you, Danya Washington. <laughs> That's right. That's right. These people have changed our lives. Yeah. <laughs> Today's guest is Dipika Gua, whose play Yoga Play is scheduled for production next season at Jiva. Dipika was born in Calcutta and raised in South India, Russia, and the United Kingdom. 
In addition to yoga play, her work includes The Art of Gaman, which was produced at Theater 503 in London, and Unreliable, which was produced at Kansas City Rep. Dipika is currently working on plays commissioned by South Coast Rep, Manhattan Theater Club, and Barrington Stage. She was a Hodder Fellow at Lewis Center for the Arts at Princeton University, the inaugural Shakespeare's Sister Playwriting Fellow, and is a current Venturist Fellow with a Lark for her play Passing. Dipika was a Frank Knox Fellow at Harvard University and has an MFA from the Yale School of Drama under Paula Vogel. For television, Dipika has written for Sneaky Pete, American Gods, Black Monday, and Projects at AMC. She's currently writing for Overlooked on Netflix and working on a pilot for Film Nation. What do you say? Should we call Dipika? Let's do it. Hey everyone, this is your half hour call. Half hour, half hour. Dipika, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today from Los Angeles. Thank you for having me. I, you are our first West Coast guest, so we especially appreciate you joining us over the time difference. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, it was an excuse to get up early. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not sure if we need or not, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, as a, a way of introduction and kind of starting the conversation, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about your upbringing. We just read your bio, and uh, so our listeners are have probably heard that you know you grew up all over the place, and um, not all over the place. That's a dismissive way of saying it, but you did you you moved around a bit, um, and so I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, we moved, I was born in India and in Calcutta, and then we moved to England, and then we moved back to India. We reverse immigrated when I was six and a half, and I spent 10 years in India and in different cities again, and then we moved to Russia, and then I spent my late teens in the UK, went to college in England, um, and worked in England for two years before I came to the U.S. on a fellowship in 2006. And I wrote my first play here. And so in a way, the organizing principle of my life is arriving and leaving. It, you know, has colored sort of how I see things and also how I write probably um, uh, exits and entrances feel <laughs> very pertinent to my way of um, understanding life. Um, yeah, my dad is a tea taster. He worked for tea companies my whole life. And so we lived in tea drinking countries. And then um, I rebelled and came to a coffee drinking country. Late, um, it was a late rebellion. Um, <laughs> and yeah. do you drink coffee or do you drink tea? I drink both now, almost equally. Very controversial. <laughs> What is in your cup right now? This is this is a real cup of tea. I made an actual like teapot cup of tea this morning in your honor. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, when you're back in India, both India and in um, England, what is the like? What is the one thing that you make sure to do, um, or like the the one food that you are like craving or looking forward to having? Um, that's a, such a good question. In England, it's all things carbohydrate. It's uh, biscuits and scones and crumpets and anything you can put butter on. Really, really good. Um, uh, and also like junk food. It's interesting. I miss junk food. I'll you know, eat things that I won't eat here, um, like chocolate. I miss chocolate. Um, I miss chocolate a lot. Um, in India, uh, I find that I'll eat anything. Um, street food, I miss a lot and seek out. Um, but just food in general, we eat like five times a day, uh, like full meals. So um, it takes up most of the day uh, eating one way or another, eating and talking are two main activities. But you won't eat the chocolate in the U.S. What's 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 different about it? I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> I, I never should have said the chocolate thing. Um, 
it tastes different here. It tastes like Hershey's. I can't eat it. It tastes like sour milk. There's a sourness to chocolate here that I don't like. Do you, but do you taste this or no? Um, I, having had both myself, um, cause I studied abroad in London and I was just, um, in Scotland for a year. It, it does taste different. I think that UK chocolate is like very creamy, um, and not as like the kind of sweetness that just hits you in like the middle of your teeth where you know you're going to get a cavity. Um, so like the richness of it, but it's, but I don't think it's something that you believe until you can have them side by side. <laughs> I have heard that the, the, you know, the chocolate is very different. Is there a, a brand of chocolate that you prefer that's really delicious? In the UK? No, I'll eat all the bad chocolate. I'll eat the dairy milk and the um, whatever you can, the, the Cadbury's twirls and the, <laughs> the anything you can get like in a regular store. Well, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about theater. <laughs> chocolate, now that we've, we've covered tea, coffee, and chocolate, and chocolate, let's talk about theater. The controversial subjects have been dealt with, yeah. That's right, we've gotten those out of the way. Yeah. So would you talk about how you found theater and, and writing? You said you wrote your first play in the U.S. Would you talk a little bit about how you found those, those art forms? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is sort of a tricky one because partly the answer is that it was um, as someone who was, it was a really shy child and we moved a lot. So I think it was sort of practically just a space where I could be heard and um, in a context where everyone was equal. I think there was something like just biologically, physiologically, I responded to, I felt safe um, in those environments because schools felt immensely unsafe to me because I didn't speak the language. Some of the, t most of the time when I was, you know, very little and um, sort of didn't know what I was doing there or how, how to be with other kids. So I think partly it was instinctive. Um, and then partly um, it, I think my grandmother was a frustrated actress and um, singer and creative person. And she uh, was married at 18 and didn't have a, you know, didn't really have an education, but was extremely good with languages and loved storytelling. And um, could keep enormous tracts of story in her head. She would have been great in a writer's room. Um, and um, so I think there was some sort of um, this sort of unlived life of my, my ancestors <laughs> coming through. Um, uh, and partly um, I was a big uh, reader, I think was my way in and most, mostly novels. Um, uh, and that was, so I, I loved language from a very young age. So that sort of makes sense. Um, the bit that maybe doesn't make sense is that I didn't really see any for most of my life growing up in India. Um, because there, there really wasn't any, our, our sort of traditions are more sort of theater dancey and, and not anything that we, we might recognize here in the West. Um, but I think there is something that uh, it was something deeply inspiring about growing up in India, which is a really difficult place or was in the nineties when I was growing up, like really, um, and still is like difficult place to reconcile the, the extremes are so much both in climate and economics. And it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around as a child. And I think there's something about that juxtaposition of two things that, um, are difficult to hold that feels intrinsic to the theatrical form to me. It feels like that's the engagement we're asking people to do, hold two ideas or two sensations at once. Um, and um, that finding a language for that, I think didn't, didn't happen for me until I was in my late teens in England and um, reading Beckett, I think probably reading, um, Carol Churchill, all of the things that I had sort of felt and accumulated in my life sort of came together, um, you know, 
I think reading plays in my in my late teens. That's sort of where, where I realized there was a pre-existing language for um, what I felt to be an impossible uh, an impossible thing to experience and also to communicate to the world. Great, two brilliant playwrights. Um, we just read Carol Churchill in our literary reading group um, that we are What doing. did you read? Uh, Cloud Nine, which was an experience. <laughs> it was my first time reading it. Um, so, and I'd read other Carol Churchill, but um, I think I was just struck by how like bold it was in the storytelling. Um, and in the choices that and risks that she was taking, like all of those years ago, um, and thinking about how how it like relates right now, um, and the sort of choices that playwrights are making right now, um, and the conversation that that's having. Um, yeah, we definitely stand on her shoulders, I think, in terms of like she sort of so economically can demonstrate how like a change in form can change the way you think like you have to your body is adapting to having to renew your understanding of the world with the way she flips gender and time and place and she yeah um so you started speaking a little bit to this already but um do you think that your identity as an immigrant and as someone who's grown up all over the world um has impacted your writing or the topics that you write about I think that belonging and what it means to belong is sort of at the center of a lot of my work and um, the need for um, as big a container for belonging as possible, which seems particularly uh, um, relevant right now in a pandemic where it's clear that we belong to each other, whether we like it or not. This is, um, um, you know, we've, we've all been affected regardless of where our boundaries, our borders are. Um, and I think that traveling a lot kind of gives you that perspective um, or, uh, or it, did, it gave me that perspective. And so it took me a, a while to like position myself inside of, inside of language in a way and inside of who I might be talking to. But I think that sort of um, desire to see an intersectional world represented is because that is my my understanding um, and how I grew up exposed me to a lot of different people from a lot of different places and classes and backgrounds. And it feels important to see that, to me, to see that conversation reflected on our stages. I'm, I'm thinking also about your... Uh, reading Carol Churchill, who plays with language as well in a really interesting way and about um, how I wonder how that um, her sort of playing with language related to your understanding of language and sometimes being in countries where you didn't speak the language and, and if there's if there's something in in that as well. I think perhaps it's something to do with heightened language that um, her characters speak in a way that feels naturalistic, but isn't. It, there's sort of such a careful design around language and the way she, a purpose behind it. And um, that always uh, felt attractive to me. Um, I think because I didn't have a sort of base of normalcy. <laughs> it wasn't like, this is how people speak. It was always like people speak in different ways and we carry our histories um, in the way that we express ourselves and we out ourselves in the way in our choices of words and language and even if you have subdued some of that through a college education or you know some 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 institution that told you how you should sound there are still tells and um, you know both in terms of our cultural references and also like what you heard growing up and the phrases that were used in your household and those beliefs that were that got in before you were um, old enough to get to sift them. <laughs> um, I think all of that, um, the the careful choosing um, of language, the careful design of language, I think ref reflects that 
um, it's not that it's not accidental and that, that normalcy is even if it exists is worth interrogating is, is an argument I feel like she makes and that I really always responded to. And you talked a little bit about um, reading Beckett as well as Carol Churchill. And I'm wondering if it, as you kind of crafted your artistic voice, if there have been other uh, mentors, people who've helped you kind of shape your, your, your career um, along the way that have, have really kind of stepped up and, and helped to shape who you are. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I took my first playwriting class in the U.S. with a playwright named Sam Marks, who was, um, do you know Sam? I do know Sam. <laughs> um, he was a spectacular, was his spectacular teacher and um, exposed uh, that class to an array of playwrights I'd never read. And um, I think it was pretty soon after taking Sam's class that I was like, trying to figure out what to do with my life and decided to lay that at his feet um and he said oh you should think about mfa programs and that led me to excuse me to um uh his mentor paula vogel who i had never heard of either um but i sent paula my first play and she responded to it and called me and told me that she had bad news and that I was a playwright. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know how that bad, how bad that news was at the time. I do now. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> and um, she single-handedly, I would say, changed my life um, in that she uh, invited me to her program at, at Brown. It was Brown at the time. And, um, it, I was able to go on full scholarship and that was true for my entire education at Brown and then at Yale where she took over the program um, and that was so important to me like I knew I couldn't take on debt um, I barely knew that I could be an artist I definitely didn't think I could do it and come out owing money um, so um, that was massively significant. And her pedagogy, uh, which was the thing that Sam was using, I think, and the thing that kind of hooked me and gave me a way to start writing. I think I had a lot of good intentions before that to, um, and a lot of things internally that had clicked into place, which again, now I see the value of that it takes time um, I think for an for an internal order to develop, um, or in, uh, for your um, physiology and the way that you feel to um, uh, to to the readiness, I think to write is something that I really believe in, and it takes as long as it takes. But as a younger person, you're very impatient to yeah. begin and. Um, and then get better immediately. Um, but she she really shaped my education and um, both in terms of her teaching and in terms of um, how you exist as a playwright, how you then come out and make a living and write a resume and send applications and do all the things that playwrights do to keep going, to sustain ourselves. Will will you back up for just a minute and say what you meant by yes. Paula saying that uh, it was bad news that you were a playwright? Um, I think she I think she meant it in jest, but I think it's um, it's it's incredibly it's an incredibly hard thing to do. I mean, it's a vocational. It feels vocational to me. Um, it's not a thing that m most of us make money from. It's um it's something that you have to you persist at because it means it matters to you it means something to you you believe in it i think all those things um and it uh it's sort of um it, it takes a long time yeah so i think i think i thought oh i, I mean i didn't even know that i could write another play after the first one i was like i think i'm done i did it <laughs> <laughs> 
you thought number you were one and done that was yeah. it just one play and you were done yeah i thought so i i had written it i'd filled out the forms i'd done the mfa thing i was astonished when someone phoned me back and told me that there was another play there could be another play um I, I had, I had no, I had no sense at all that that was what was going to happen, let alone that that was what was going to keep happening um, for the next 15 years. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm going to get out a pen and paper for this next question. Uh -oh. um, <laughs> um, as you're thinking about your career, um, what are some helpful pieces of advice that you've held on to either from Paula or from um, other people? Um, that I'm just advice. I, I mean, Paula's was always write the next play, um, which sounds sort of elementary, but is so true. There was playwrights talk a lot about, well, how, you know, it's a sensitive subject. How much are you writing? <laughs> when are you writing? But I think I always had a sense of like a play a year was a good idea. And I was on, um, I wrote two, I think for a long time that it just was, it just was practice. And she was always very much about moving on to the next, like not, not sweating, not perfecting the first and that it was important certainly in grad school to just bank a ton of first drafts so then um when things are difficult which she didn't say but when things are difficult uh, after you graduate and you need to make a living and support yourself um you're not doing that very difficult work of generate generating um and um that 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 is a thing that is possible when you have mental or ordinarily is possible when you have some mental space um, so I think that was, that was an incredibly good piece, um, a piece of advice. Um, what else? I mean, Lynn Nodage, who taught me at grad school, so it was a big fan of, um, reading, reading widely, reading philosophy, reading things that, uh, reading nonfiction, reading outside of what you might be interested in and, um, also exposing yourself to new forms whether that's athletics whether it's sports whether it's burlesque whether it's you know whatever kinds of things exist in a performative arena she was very um interested in what we were gleaning from from the world in that way um and that was also very useful but there's there's stuff we can borrow and steal from from all kinds of like performative spaces those are the two that come to mind. Yeah. Well, you're now writing in another performative space. You're doing a lot of television writing. Where, when did that start to happen for you? When, and how did you get into it? Um, I got into it three years ago when a, a lit manager sent a showrunner that she knew a play of mine. And so uh, he was staffing a show at that time. So I went in and, and met and got the job <clears throat> and was before that, didn't think of myself as a TV writer or much of a TV watcher, honestly. And I've been so immersed in theater for so long. Um, the TV had changed a great deal, uh, you know, and people have known this for a long time, but that, you know, things were things had shifted radically and the storytelling has had become so incredible and um, the risks that were being taken in television, um, the formal risks that are, were being taken and uh, had shifted. And so, yeah, so it felt, um, it felt less, uh, less of a leap, I guess, in terms of storytelling. Um, or at least in, in terms of formally and experimentally, which is, I've always thought of myself as someone who's very focused on form. Um, but it was a huge shift in terms of the making of the thing and um, the process and going from, I've spent most of my life alone to being in a room with other writers like all day. Um, I think it's been, this is my sixth room in 
three years. So it's been most hours of most days and then kind of writing my plays around that, you know, mornings and evenings and weekends and Zooming it, Skyping in, it wasn't Zoom. <laughs> in the yesteryear, three months ago, it was Skype. Um, uh, but yeah, Skyping into rehearsals and like leaving, you know, trying to, trying very hard to, to balance both has been sort of the effort of the last few years. What do those rooms look like? I feel like my idea of what like a TV writer's room, I've, I've gotten from TV shows <laughs> of like, the, you know, white walls and everyone and like the sticky notes on the, um, on the wall. That's it. Sticky notes, <laughs> whiteboards, often fluorescent lighting, sometimes no natural light. A lot of Oreos. <laughs> Oreos. <laughs> Lots of gummy bears. Uh, um, yeah, like long, long tables. Yeah. Um, yes, and lots of lots of sweaty, sweaty writers. <laughs> it sounds very corporate, except for the Oreos and gummy bears. Yes. Um, Yes, it, it does feel corporate because they're often you'll be on a studio in a in sort of studio lot just in an office. Um just the deeply inter impersonal spaces. Um and sometimes there is the will to try to fix the lights and maybe get some lamps and try to get rid of the fluorescence but it never really sticks <laughs> <laughs> um well thinking of your playwriting um and your play yoga play which we've just announced that we will be doing next season which we were all very excited about yeah. um and very much enjoyed the the humor um of it and the sort of examination of of what authenticity um, really means. Um, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but does yoga play a role in your life at all? Um, you know, well, there's yoga and yoga, I guess. And I think um, I grew up doing, you know, yoga on a hard floor at school, which was just doing in India, just doing the postures. There was no language around anything, let alone this is for your self development um, spiritually. It was um, please do this exercise and keep doing it, uh, keep re repeating it. And so this whole, the whole, I think, sort of the uh, kind of phil philosophically, I guess it was not something I really thought much about when I was a child you know growing up and doing it and then there was a long gap of time and I didn't really I didn't do it at all before I started researching the play and then um I sneak sneaked into a bunch of yoga classes and that was my first time being in a yoga class in the states and um the astonishment of the mats and the the bits and bobs the things that you need and the, and the pants maybe especially um <laughs> <laughs> uh and what um you know I was so struck and overwhelmed by what what it has become I guess um and the distance from those hard floors to um very shiny yoga mats with very skinny people on them um so yeah it it was a big so it wasn't and and I think though now I sort of come in and out. I practice sometimes, but in India, um, if you don't have a good teacher, and this is true for yoga, but also for music and dance, whatever you're studying, then you may not as well. You may. It's probably better not to do it. Is the uh, is the idea? So it's very very teacher focused, and so I think I carried that with me for a long time. That oh right. I don't have to write, I'm not finding the right teacher or right teacher isn't appearing. So maybe it's best for me not to do it. But um, it's, it's, um, it's since I, I do think that, and, and the play of course deals with this, that we're all in a place of, of needing, um, there's so much good that is in those 
fosters and I'm not um, not arguing with that certainly <laughs> all right everyone we are back from our break we are back we are back so when all of this started you were in London right mm -hmm. working on a pilot um, adaptation of a novel yeah. what can you tell us about that um, I can tell you that it is an adaptation of a book uh, that's coming out in the autumn, and it's um, it's about a um, high wire walker. Um, it's about a woman. It's a surface story, and it's set in England in the nineteen fifties. Um, and we follow her through the through the course of her life, and it is about. Um, someone who is uh, overlooked in her own life and grows up um, kind of as an orphan in this um, crazy sort of surface environment. And very, as a very young child, she makes a terrible mistake um, and it's irrecoverable. And it comes from uh, a deeply kind of childlike place that makes sense to her in the moment, as as we all do when we're kids. Things seem like a re really good idea <laughs> in the moment, and um, <clears throat> she wounds uh, by doing it. She she wounds one of the people who are only people in her life who are closest to her, and um, the story then is about is a sort of atonement tale. And how do you recover once you've once you've done something um, that you you can't recover from? How do you live with yourself? And um, and uh, yes, yeah, so we follow her through the course of her life, and the and the pilot is it's the very beginning of that story. Were you able to collaborate with the novelist at all, or was it were you just handed the book like? <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, they sent me the book. I was sent the book and then I pitched on it. Um, and, um, they responded to my particular take. So I'm in conversation with the producers, but I'm not in conversation with the novelist, um, as they have the rights to the book. And so that's a sort of strange thing, um, to, 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 to strange position to be in as a novelist, I'm sure to have to, to ha having kind of handed over your book. To not know what's what's happening but also exciting as well but also exciting hopefully yeah i hope i hope she's pleased at the end but you know they are very different they have to do two different jobs and i'm, I'm sure when you're writing a novel you're not you're not really thinking of it as a as a visual kind of telling of the tale in the way that it has to be for tv um, so you're also working on another show, um, another new one called Overlooked, um, which is based on the New York Times column featuring obituaries of women who've been overlooked in history, which is a very cool concept. Um, what's that like? Um, and what's it like being in a writer's room right now that's all through Zoom? Yeah, um, well, the, the show is an anthology series that was based, as you say, on the New York Times obituary column called Overlooked that was begun by, by an obituary's editor at the Times named Amy Padnani. And she noticed that only 20% of the obituaries at the Times they were writing there were women and people of color. And so it took her a while at the, internally at the Times to, to get this project off the ground, but it was her idea to revisit these these um overlooked uh deaths of people who were significant who made significant contributions in their lifetimes and um and uh didn't didn't get column inches and so the show is based on a number of people who featured in those obituaries over the last couple of years um and so we're using um women in particular women's lives in particular and really digging into um the question of it's an all-female writer's room it's half women of color which is amazing it's my first time to be in a room of this of this competition and um it's really this is our second week and it's been an extraordinary experience so far um 
both as we kind of think about how to honor these lives that didn't get um, proper recognition in their lifetimes. Um, and what does it mean for us to be telling these stories now? Um, how are we in conversation with the, the stories? Because they're not, this is not, uh, they're not biographies and not documentaries. It's about us kind of um, bringing to life um, in a kind of imaginative and fictional way what, what, what we think is at the core of the person's uh, lived experience as well as what they believed in and stood for. And um, one key question we're asking is how would they have told the story? How would they have wanted, what would they have wanted their obituary to look like? Um, uh, and so, yeah, so the process so far has been really, uh, really amazing. Are there any other playwrights in the room? Yes, there are. There are four of us, which is also why I'm enjoying it so much. Likely uh, 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 three fantastic playwrights, Jen Silverman, Antoinette Mwandu, and Lanelle Moisey. That's exciting. That's such a great group of such a great group of playwrights to have in a television writer's room. It's really fun. Yes, yes, it, it's been uh, it's been such a gift so far. And um, I think the conversation um, is much closer to how also because there it's an anthology series. So we're thinking about the episodes as most for the most part self-contained. Um, thinking in smaller arcs, but also kind of raising these stories from theme and question and image and a language that is more akin to playwriting than it is TV writing, which is often comes from a place of like character and, and plot. And hopefully all those things, of course, intersect in a way that's compelling, but um, it is a bit different. The playwright, a playwright's way in does feel like it's a bit different. And, um, and, um, and so that's very, it's very fun. Are there any stories from that, from those obituaries that you've read? I'm sure you've read many, many of them. Are there any that you have that are sort of, this is your favorite story or you're, you're like, you're most intrigued by one of these people? Yeah, I think uh, the, the one person who didn't make it was um, someone who was very well known in her lifetime, Ada Lovelace, who is seen as the first computer programmer, but she was also Byron's illegitimate Lord Byron's illegitimate daughter which I didn't know um and sort of had this like inheritance of she her mom um prevented her from uh reading literature she was like you will not go down that path we will not <laughs> speak of that man you will do math <laughs> and science and then you know for her you know what just imagining what that would have been like um and for her to have developed a language for herself that was both this this combination of of science and art and in how she looked at um, how she wrote about math i think was, was is deeply compelling to me both in terms of what we kind of inherit from our dnas from our families and um how that how that shapes our instincts um and how far she was ahead of her time. There's, there's a lot of being uh, ahead of your time kind of lends itself to being misunderstood. And um, I'm very interested in this question about what does it mean to arrive on time? Like so few of us <laughs> maybe, maybe do, but um, yeah, yeah. Hey everyone, this is your 15 minute call, 15 minutes to places, thank you. Yeah, I mean, do you feel that you are part of the theater still as you are at home? <laughs> like, how, has that been a challenge? Um, yeah, I, I do still feel part of the theater. Um, I think because we are having um, ongoing conversations, like we're, we're still working um, like a pretty classic work week. Um, and having Zoom calls and um, emails, like the, the emails do not stop. <laughs> um, so I think definitely feel connected that way. Um, I think the 
you know, the, the theater making part of it um, feels a little bit disconnected because, you know, we don't have the opportunity to actually go into the building and like look at the stage and see what the progress of the set is or um, get rehearsal reports or um, because we don't have a show going on right now. So I think that like the actual product of it um, is something that we all miss. Yeah, you know, we're keeping active through things. I mean, the podcast is a big part of our attempts to keep connected to the theater. Um, and then Jiva is also doing a weekly sort of happy hour um, on Facebook to connect artists and, um, you know, tell stories and uh, sometimes play music. And so it is, we're, we're doing things to try and stay connected. We're doing things to keep in touch with our audiences and our community, but it is a, it's a very different world when we're not producing, you know, when we're not doing the thing that the, the organization was created to do. So it is definitely a very different world, but still, you know, I think we are, we are trying to stay as connected as possible and to keep preparing for things like your show next season. <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we continue to, to keep working um, and, and be ready to, to come back to life when we're able to. Yeah. It's an amazing season next year. You have. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. Wonderful new place. It's really exciting what you're doing. Um, and supporting uh, supporting the life of new plays. Um, it was really heartening for me anyway to see so many wonderful names. <laughs> Good. We're excited by it. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that we're, we have been uh, actively trying to do over the last several years is to expand the stories and the voices that we are hearing from and connecting with on our stages and in our lives. So, you know, uh, I appreciate you saying that, um, that it was heartening. Yeah, it was. I mean, Lloyd So and Mona Monsoor and Chelsea. I can tell so many, so many wonderful, uh, so many wonderful playwrights in one space. It was really thrilling to see. So how are you finding this um, the need to be creative and productive with all of the things that are happening in the world right now. Yeah, it was impossible in the first couple of weeks and I felt extremely paralyzed and unable to work or think and my entire focus was on my friends and family and, you know, reading the news incessantly all over wherever anyone I live is, which was very time consuming and, um, you know, useless because you know, we're all dealing with these feelings of helplessness. And, you know, even if something was to happen, we, none of us can travel. Um, so yeah, adapting to that kind of underlying stress, which I suppose is existential. Anything can happen at any time. <laughs> and that's true. But the awareness of that, given the pandemic, I think, and just how much loss of life there's been, I think, has been, it's, it's been very hard to kind of think and focus. But it, after the first couple of weeks, I found it easier to kind of get back into the work and regain my focus and concentration. Um, but I will say that there is uh, sort of in, in the theater because there's so much, we're so much in the scarcity model so much of the time there's a lot of pressure to be productive and to be productive on multiple fronts simultaneously in order to sustain your life that I think the unsustainability of some of those aspects crumbling or coming into view now is not a bad thing in this space and it's it's good to kind of take some space to figure out what what really is possible what is sustainable and um one artist, one a choreographer I spoke with recently said, he said, I'm just treating this time with patience for myself, which I thought was so nice. He said, I'm reading a lot of books and um, 
listening to music and not trying to solve the problem. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about writing for Zoom and Zoom readings and short form theater. And I think so any excuse to be creative is good, but I think that it is too much to ask that, um, that, that perhaps mastering Zoom is not the answer here, you know, in terms of theater, because it's never going to make us happy anyway. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I think you're right. The Zoom is never going to make us happy. We're always going to be frustrated by it. And, you know, certainly there is the desire to connect and to share stories and to see each other's faces, which Zoom fills a little bit of that. Uh, but it's not, it's never, you're right that it's never going to be that kind of uh, in-person collaboration and feedback and the way that we feel things from an audience and the way that we understand what it's like to have live theater. I mean, Zoom doesn't feel like live theater in any respect. So I think it will, you know, it, it certainly is not an answer. It's maybe a, maybe it's a band-aid for right now. Um, and I think you're right that if this moment gives us time to pause and think about what is sustainable and how do how do we strengthen our art form um i think you're right that that this is this is a really valid thing to be doing right now if we can if we can find other ways to answer that question of how do we how do we carry forward in a healthy theater world yeah, when, when we're all sort of operating kind of um, uh, from, a, from a place of stress, you know, in, in general, and, and directors certainly, you know, going from job to job, and it's such a, it's such a hard thing to, to do when you're prepping for your next gig and while you're doing, while you're directing the one that you're directing, and like it, we, we work in this sort of impossible way, and feed off of that a lot of the time but it is tremendously difficult and um as you all know so so if the pause can help us kind of remedy our way into a better more balanced future somehow i don't know how yet but i think the the worst thing that can happen is um if you know once we start easing back into a sense of normalcy that things won't just go back to the way that they were. Um, I think that's a lot of people's fear right now is um, not using this, this situation or this experience to move forward and to make change and to have different kinds of conversations about accessibility and, um, and sustainability. Hopefully all of those things happen. Um, and are happening right yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's valid sort of fear um, uh, because we often don't change unless we have to. we absolutely have to. <laughs> we really resist it. So I mean, um, if if we're not going to get the subscriber base back that we had when before the pan pandemic, then maybe that will be incentive enough or if artists decide that, you know, um, that it, it, it isn't possible to do shows back to back in the way that, you know, we were doing before, you know, what, what will that mean for the, um, for our form? Are there things in, in the world right now that are giving you hope for the future? Oh, God, what a good question. <laughs> um, so I, do, I, I tend not to believe in, in optimism. Like I'm in much more in favor of hope than optimism. I think optimism feels like the band-aid to me and the sort of cheerful face on, on tragedy. Um, but hope is hard won and uh, um, it comes from, you know, it comes from a different place in us, I think. Uh, 
so it is it's a really it's a really good question um it's a it's a revolutionary moment i think this this pause for a kind of global culture as you say email doesn't stop hasn't still stopped but um the opportunity of the pause to um not band-aid our sufferings and not not paper over the pain that has preceded this moment i think does give us kind of tremendous opportunity as Fran, if you were saying if we're if we would be willing to look at those things um then i think there's a lot of hope for how much how much transformation um which is a which is a word i like better than change that that there is no sliding back there's no going back to kind of the hyper consumerism of before this moment i i i i wish i could say that with certainty of course but um i think a lot will depend on on um the daily good usage of this this frustration for those of us who have the luxury of social distancing of course and staying home um every small change in our lives i think impacts as we've seen in a short span of time impacts the planet and you know biodiversity and all the things that we have so so interfered with um but it is also possible that things will get a lot worse before they get better and um uh in that instance maybe the work is still the same it's still about kind of as profound a reckoning as we can manage with with ourselves um that painful as it is i think is is a source of hope for me thank you for doing this today dipika thank you for thank joining you. us thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure it's nice to see your faces it's so wonderful to see your face and to hear all of the great things that you're thinking about and working on and um, to hear how you got into this field and it's just been a really great conversation so thank you thank you thank you for having me and sending you lots and lots of good wishes that's what we need a little bit of sunshine oh yes that's some sunshine it's coming <laughs> on its way five minutes to places everyone this is your five minute call it was so great to meet and talk with Deepika today i know such a lovely lovely person um and so insightful absolutely and you know i i had never met her or had a a real-time in real-time conversation with her before well i've you know loved love yoga play um i just hadn't met her in person so it was great to hear some of her stories about you know how she got into theater and um meeting the incredible teachers who have helped her along the way and also her transition into television and what that experience has been like um i think we hear a lot these days that so many TV writers rooms are staffed with playwrights. Um, so it was great to actually hear what that's like from someone who's actively in the room right now. Although I'm kind of sad that it's such a corporate, <laughs> corporate setting for them to be creating in. There are Oreos. <laughs> that's true. There are Oreos and gummy bears. I guess that makes it worth it. <laughs> We'll petition for a window for her though. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, what we were what we were talking about at the end, um, about where we move forward from here. Um, and really hoping um that the theater industry can sort of have this moment of reflection um and to really think about, you know, the systems that we have in place right now and how that can look different, not only for our audiences, but for, um, for people that are in different departments and um, different designers and actors and playwrights, just really looking at all of those individual um, professions and thinking about, you know, how can we make those better and more sustainable 
um, looking forward because the, the world is going to look different. It is. And I think we can't avoid the fact that our, our lives will be quite different. Our theater going habits will be different. You know, I, I read something yesterday that there was a poll about uh, a poll of people who attend arts uh, and um, entertainment events and only 40% of them said that they would be willing to return before there is a vaccine and the majority of them said that they may never return and that was a little it was a frightening thing to see I don't know I don't have all of the details of that and I will put in the blog post I'll put the full link to that study but I, it's a really um sort of a scary moment to be thinking about what the future might be. Of course, we want to bring our hope and our courage into that moment of returning, but it is interesting to, to start to think about how our audiences may look different in the future and, and how we view that as an exciting opportunity as well. Places, please, for the top of the show. Places, please, for the top of the show. Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Warner. And I'm Fran Dasilvera. Andrew Mark Willem composed our theme song and is our audio engineer. Our artwork was created by graphic designer Amanda Rickspins. Today's stage manager was Dana Angelis. Special thanks to our marketing director, Melissa Boyack, our director of production, Jen Lyons, today's co-host, assistant literary director, Fran Dasilvera, and to today's guest, Dipika Gua. Find out more about Jiva at jivatheater.org, and there's more on our blog at jivajournal.wordpress.com. And we'll see you next time we're out of the rehearsal hall. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful performance today. We will do this all again tomorrow, same time, same place. Thank you.